Almighty Father, as we now come to your word, uh, we ask that you will, um, that you'll be our teacher uh, in a wonderful promise, you, you, you don't just leave us alone to just kind of figure stuff out by ourselves. Thank you for that. Thank you that you work in us, you clarify. Uh, so we ask that you would focus our minds, and, and in a sense, uh, focus our image of who Jesus is. Uh, where, where our perception of who Jesus is is fuzzy, um, please, please bring it into focus. Um, but, but we ask that you would grant us to see the beauty of Jesus, that you'd grant us to see uh, who he is, that you would bind our hearts to him by your Holy Spirit and give us the reality that we're going to talk about. But, but keep us from just talking about it. We, we want the reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. Uh, and uh, if you would, turn back to that big, long story. Uh, we're going to be, the verses we're going to look at are mainly on page 11. So um, we are continuing a series in looking at this big, long story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Uh, it's a big story, as you can tell. It's uh, longer reading than we normally read uh, together, but um, it's good to have a nice long section of scripture to read, so we're, we're game on that. Um, each week, we're, we're looking at this di- a different aspect of the story and sort of asking the question, we don't always ask it explicitly, but uh, what is it that we learn about how Jesus transforms us? And what is it that we learn about how Jesus sends us out in mission? Those two questions are floating in the background all the time. And today, our task is to focus in on verse, uh, just verse 23 and 24 and try to figure out what Jesus is talking about. Take, take a look at verse 23 and 24 uh, in, uh, on page 11. Jesus says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's going to be the bit that we have to focus on. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, pause. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about worshiping the Father in spirit and truth? And my guess, you can tell me later if you think this is right, my guess is that for those of us who don't have a... a, 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 haven't spent an enormous amount of time in church and don't have a big old hunk in religious background. Um, my guess is that those words, worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, just sort of seem, sound like a pile-up of religious jargon that you put together and it's like, I don't have a clue what that means. Um, now, if that's you, fantastic. Um, hang in there. Because the reality is, the rest of us who are familiar with these words, we don't know what it means either. Most of the time. So, a lot of times Christians will use this jargon, we need to worship in spirit and in truth. And you find it a lot of times in prayers, Lord, please make us worship in spirit and in truth, or something like that. But, but if you actually ask, like, help me, what, what, and they'll kind of go, mm, we should be sincere, vaguely. <laughs> N- no. And so we're all kind of starting from the same place, okay? There, there's, it's a strange thing that Jesus t- says right here, and so we're just going to spend our time trying to figure out what it means, okay? But the nice thing is, uh, the Samaritan woman was confused by it as well. However, Jesus uses his words very, very carefully when he describes this to her, and as we look at it closely, he actually, it seems to me, brings her along so that she begins to experience the reality. Even right there on the spot, she begins to experience the reality that Jesus is describing. So we're going to put the camera angle on her, follow her along, and we'll get some clues. Two questions, real simple. What does he mean by worshiping the Father in spirit, uh, in truth? 
What does he mean by worshiping the Father and Spirit? Okay? All right. First of all, what does Jesus mean by worshiping the Father in truth? Now, the Samaritan woman probably had a little bit of a clue uh, what Jesus was talking about when he mentions worshiping the Father in truth. And that's because of her religious background. So a little bit of background on the Samaritans. If you've been with us, you know that the Samaritan movement was, uh, had broken away from mainstream Judaism a few hundred years before this. They were viewed as kind of a little heretical group. Uh, and one of their characteristics is that they accepted uh, the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. They didn't accept the rest of it, just the first five books. And so they were very, very focused upon that. Now, one of the things that that means is that... Uh, for the Samaritan woman, the biggest story that dominated her religious imagination uh, was the story of the Exodus. So let's just review the Exodus for, for a minute. You remember uh, the story, this happened, this happened hundreds of years before this conversation occurs. Uh, Israel were, was a slave community in Egypt. Egypt was a superpower of the day. There was uh, no civil rights or anything like that, so there was zero chance uh, from one perspective, that Israel would ever be anything more than a slave community within the superpower of the day, within Egypt. And they didn't really have a clear idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They probably had a little bit of an echo, because in their, uh, in their community past, they had some vague stories of uh, a unique God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they didn't have any of the details, and they weren't even particularly looking for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to particularly break in on their lives. And yet, in spite of that, right when they weren't looking for God and had very little expectation, God showed up. God just kind of interrupted them. And it's a little bit like uh, the woman at the, the well here. I mean, she, she goes to the well. She's not looking to have a life-transforming encounter with the living God. She just wants water. And nevertheless, Jesus introduces himself to her, and everything in her life changes. Well, that's a little bit what happened for ancient Israel uh, at the Exodus. What happened is God, so to speak, sort of decided to introduce himself, and the way he introduced himself to Israel was crucially important. Because what he does, and I'm, I'm kind of taking this big old long story and kind of smashing it, but what he did is he said, listen, Israel, hi, um, Watch what I do, Israel. Watch what it is that I'm about ready to do. And then, Israel, listen to what it is that I'm going to say. And when you watch what I do and listen to what I say, then you'll know who I am. You said a couple weeks ago that that word, I am, actually, he, he said that you, you can just call me that. That'll be my name. I am. As if to say, you'll know who I am when you watch what it is that I do and when you listen to what it is that I say. And then God acts dramatically. He rescues Israel miraculously. There's the Red Sea. There's all the plagues. It's a great story. And throughout it, there's this subtext. It's as if God says, Israel, I am far more engaged in your life and gracious and loving and merciful than your conjecture about me would have ever imagined. I'm a surprise. But then there's more. So after God rescues Israel out of Egypt, he spends like 40 years wandering in the Negev desert with Israel, and it ends up the whole time God is very, very talkative. He just talks. 
a lot. The whole, a lot of the uh, five books of the Bible is God speaking through Moses. And, and in the course, God describes himself to Israel, what his character is like. He says, I am a God merciful and gracious, full of kindness and blessing generations of those who serve me to thousands of generations and also a God of justice. And he describes what it is that he expects of Israel. He says, I, I want you to obey me. And throughout, again, there's this kind of subtext that says, uh, God says to Israel, I rescued you, Israel, because I love you. Not because you're great, but because I love you. And I want you to love me too. And that'll only happen when you really deeply know who I am. And this is where it matters to our text. It is all through that story, God says, I want you to worship me in truth, like I really am. Not like you imagine me to be but as I actually am. Now, that whole backstory would have made a lot of sense to the Samaritan woman. However, my guess is that it is probably pretty challenging to us, at least when we think through its implications. Why do I say that? I say that because for us, whenever we meet Jesus Christ, just like the Samaritan woman, whenever we meet Jesus Christ, Jesus does not allow us to stay satisfied with our personally held ideas, opinions, expectations about God. He is always challenging them. He is always pressing beyond our expectations of God, ideas about God, personal opinions about God. Whatever it is that comes to your mind when you think about God, Jesus will inevitably challenge at least part of that and it's as if Jesus comes to us and says, I, I want you to know the God that you're not particularly looking for. The God that you don't necessarily expect. But nevertheless, even though you don't expect him to be this way, he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And he'll challenge you in ways that will at times be uncomfortable. Now, I belabor this just a little bit because this is part of the reason why Christian worship always starts with this process of taking our personally held and sometimes cherished opinions, expectations, and ideas about who God is, and we have to take them to Jesus as Jesus presents himself in scripture, and we say to Jesus, Jesus, reshape what it is that comes to my mind when I think about God. I want to worship you in truth, not just in my imaginary projections of my highest values. And therefore, Jesus, I assume that I am at least partially wrong about who God is and about who you are. Correct my thinking. And if you've ever actually done that, it, it, it's quite difficult to do. And for some of us, I expect that, that the whole concept of that is offensive. It's like, well, who is what? Don't I get to hold my personal views? This is my personal view. It's my private. Don't, don't touch that. Now, if it is offensive, then it, that's kind of a good sign because it's an indication that, that, <laughs> that we're actually hearing. That very often, um, we don't, we're not really listening to Jesus until he's just a little bit offensive. So, so that's good. But if it's offensive, think back to the Samaritan woman. Because here she is. She, she's a seeker. And one of the things that's so delightful about her is that she's intellectually honest and she's intellectually courageous. She knew a lot about God. And I'm sure that she had her own views, expectations, opinions about God as well. But then she met Jesus. 
And the remarkable thing about when she met Jesus is here she is, she's been pursuing truth all of her life, undoubtedly, but nevertheless, when she meets Jesus, she doesn't realize it in the beginning, but she comes to get clear about it by the end. She ends up meeting in person the truth that she has always been pursuing. In person. It's not just that she has a new set of ideas about God, though she does, but it's that she, in the person of Jesus Christ, she gets to meet truth in person. And then, it's better, she gets to be loved by truth. Have you ever thought about being loved by truth? Sometimes we imagine discovering truth and kind of owning it, but no. You meet Jesus and you get to be loved by truth. And then Jesus clearly corrects her, critiques her. He, he says this, this Samaritan temple on the mountain that was overlooking the well where they were meeting, he says that, that temple's not, it's not going to get you where you need to go, says Jesus. He, he critiques the, the epicenter of her religious identity. But nevertheless, at, by the end of the story, she is not angry with Jesus' critique. She's filled with joy. Ends up truth is better than her expectations. And that's why, as Christians, we have this strong expectation that Jesus is going to continually critique our opinions, ideas, and views of God. But nevertheless, it's worth it because at the end of the day, we get to meet the God who is actually there and that he's better than we ever imagined. That's why worshiping the Father in truth is so precious to us. All right, that's the first thing. Now, let's do the second bit. What does it mean to worship the Father in spirit? Now, go back to the Samaritan woman, because I think, probably, the idea of worshiping the Father in spirit was a little bit more elusive to her. She probably had a little bit of an idea because uh, she was uh, shaped by the Samaritan temple, which was on a mountain overlooking where they were meeting. And the whole idea of a temple, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the whole idea of a temple is that a temple is designed to give spiritual access to God. God's spirit, we're physical, how do you interact physical with the spiritual world, well, people would build temples, and the temples were designed to broker that relationship. However, if the Samaritans would have had the rest of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, they would have had a little bit more information. If they had the rest of what we call the Old Testament, they would have known that from For a very, very long time, God had been planning on replacing the temple with something else, a better plan. If you read through the Old Testament, particularly the the portions of the Old Testament that the Samaritans did not read, um, you'll find out that God has this desire to have a greater access to his people, and he has a desire that his people would have greater access to himself. And therefore, there's this idea that God is promising a new covenant, a, a kind of new deal, a new plan of how God and God's people are going to have access to one another. And in this new covenant, this new deal, this new plan, God would pour out his Holy Spirit, which, who is fully God, just like Jesus is fully God, just like the Father is fully God. He would pour out his Spirit into the hearts of his people. And one of the things that the Spirit would do is the Spirit would come into the heart of his people and in a way make his people into living temples. The Spirit would come into our hearts so that we trust and love God, that we are filled with loyalty and affection and a bond of joy with God. Now, the Samaritans had a at best, a vague idea of this. 
However, Jesus gives all these hints. He uses very provocative language as he describes it to her that gives her hints. Look at verse 23 and 24. Let me show you the hints that Jesus gives her as to what this means. Do you see how Jesus uses uh, the word that Jesus uses for God? Do you notice he doesn't use the word God right then? What word does he use? He uses Father twice. Why is that important? It's extremely important. Here's why. In that context, almost nobody called God Father, except Jesus. Jesus almost always calls God Father, particularly when Jesus prays. I think there's one exception where he does not, and it's when he's on the cross. Whenever Jesus prayed, he, he cries out, Father, or in Aramaic, the very intimate word, Abba. And part of the reason that nobody else used the word Father to talk about God is that it was just too intimate. It, 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 was, too, it was almost irreverent to speak of the great and holy God as Father. And certainly, it wouldn't, a bit, wouldn't have been appropriate for Samaritans because they were mildly heretical. Nor would it have been appropriate for women. Women in this, this culture weren't even allowed to be taught the scriptures very often. And here's a woman who's at best morally questionable. And yet, despite all that, Jesus looks at her. And again, the subtext is, Jesus says, God is seeking you like a father seeks a lost child. The father wants you to worship him, not just like some far-off deity that you might perform for and please, but rather, he wants you to worship him like a close, beloved father with all the warmth and affection and love that is supposed to be present in a family, though often it is not. Can you imagine how powerful it must have been for her to consider Worshiping God, not just as a far-off deity, but as Father. And she didn't think that, that something like that could apply to her, but Jesus thought it absolutely applied to her. Now, what does all this have to do with worshiping the Father in spirit? It has everything to do with worshiping the Father in spirit, because if you look through the rest of the New Testament, all the teachings about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does all sorts of things, but one of the key, two of the key things that the Spirit does is, first of all, the Spirit helps us grasp the truth of who Jesus is, what it is that Jesus has done, what it is that Jesus says, and why it's so important to us. The Holy Spirit sort of uh, takes a blurry vision of Jesus and brings it into focus. Whoa, there he is. I see him now. But then the second thing. So in that context, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. But then the second thing the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit works within our hearts so that we not only see Jesus clearly, but we trust him. And then as we trust him, the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts, communicates into our souls a sense that God has now through Christ become my father. And we find ourselves praying and saying, Father, affectionately. Why would we do that? Well, the Holy Spirit makes it happen. That's why the Holy Spirit is called elsewhere the spirit of adoption. And I think the Samaritan woman began, if, even if she didn't entirely understand all the theology, she began to taste it. And you know, theology is meant for tasting. If you haven't tasted it, you, it, it's not there yet. Why? She gives every reason to, say, to think that the Holy Spirit was beginning to fill her with trust in Jesus and fill her with love of God as Father. Why do I say that? Look at verse 23. Look, look, verse, look at verse 23. Do you see how Jesus talks about time? Um, don't worry, this, this does relate. 
He says the hour is coming, so the future, but then he also says the hour is already here, the present. Do you notice that? Which is a little bit odd. Why, is he, is he, why does he do that? Why does he talk about the future? Why does he talk about the present? It's important. When he talks about the future, he says the hour is coming when everybody's going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says the hour is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And when he says it's coming, he's pointing to his death, resurrection, and ascension. Last Thursday was Ascension Day. He's pointing to the three big things Jesus is going to do in order to arrange our adoption and arrange the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to rise, proving that he is the Lord of all. And then he's going to ascend to the Father so that for all eternity, there is a human, perfect human being, fully God and fully human, seated next to the Father. And through that, he is he is in authority over all, and part of his authority, he gets to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. He's pointing her to something that's going to happen in just a few months. Now, that's crucially important because this woman knows. It's important that she looks ahead to the future because this woman knows that, that she has a broken relationship with God. Almost certainly. She knows almost certainly, that her Samaritan religion isn't really bringing her any closer to God. She knows that she can't pull it off. That's why in verse 25 she goes, I really need the Messiah, because I can't pull this off. None of us can. And then, as she's looking away from herself, knowing that she can't pull this off, she looks at Jesus, and she doesn't quite know it, but she comes to clarity that she is looking into the object of her hope. She's been hoping for the Messiah that's going to make her relationship with God right. And she's been hoping for it, and now she's looking at him. And Jesus looks into her eyes, and he says, it's almost time. Dear daughter of God, it's almost time when I will die for your sins, and I will die for your brokenness, and I will worship the Father in spirit and in truth in a way that you can never do. And in doing that, I will worship the Father in spirit and in truth perfectly for all eternity through my ascension and seated at the right hand of God the Father, and therefore, through my ongoing worship, I'm going to open up the door so that you can be adopted into the family of God. Not because you're good, but because my death, resurrection, and ascension is so good that it heals broken relationships. He says, it's almost time. Get ready. But then he says, not only is it almost time, it's right now. Because, why can he say that? Because he's standing there with her. Because he's there. And she's talking to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as she listens to him speak, she's personally meeting God's truth and being loved by it. And even though she didn't figure out all that it means. Nevertheless, the picture was coming into focus. And as she talks to Jesus, she gives every reason to believe that she's beginning to trust him more and more. She begins so skeptical. She ends so trusting. She's being drawn in, allured by the love of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Whenever you see somebody or whenever you see within yourself an increase of trust in Jesus Christ, you know, like a barometer, that the Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit's being poured into your heart. That's what was happening there. She was still confused, but nevertheless, she was beginning to taste, even before she understood. Jesus, in that moment, was giving her the spirit of truth, making God clear. Jesus, in that moment, was giving her the spirit of adoption, allowing her to sense the Father's affection with vivid, real joy. The point is, Jesus was already 
empowering her to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, right there on the spot. And that's what Jesus wants, us, wants to do for us. It's the epicenter of our transformation. It's it. All of Christianity, almost, kind of. Work out the implications. One of the things that it means is that when Christians talk about worship, we are always talking about something bigger than just what happens right here. It's always bigger than Sunday. Uh, Sunday includes it. Please come to church on Sunday. Um, But don't reduce Christian worship just to this. Christian worship is also more than just uh, wonderful, ecstatic experiences. Though they're wonderful, and they support it. But you can't reduce Christian worship to those ecstatic experiences. What is Christian worship? Christian worship is when you meet Jesus. You meet Jesus through his word, and Jesus teaches you and shows you who he is, challenging you at the core of who you are. And sometimes it's painful, but it's always worth it because his truth increasingly becomes your operating system. And then Jesus gives you at the same moment another gift. He gives you his Holy Spirit so that as he's challenging you, you're beginning to trust him. And you sense yourself adopted by God as your affectionate father. Now, that's bigger than what can be crammed into a mere ritual. Ritual, again, supports it. Do the liturgy, absolutely, because it supports it, but understand that we're always looking through it like we look through a window. We look th- the point of a window is to be looked through, and that's what Christian worship is always like, Christian ritual. We look through it asking that we might meet Jesus. And in the end, Christian worship ends up being the whole of the Christian's life. It includes moments of ecstasy. It includes seasons of suffering. Sometimes we're just hanging on the cross with Jesus Christ, and it's painful, and in that moment you're worshiping in spirit and in truth. And other times you're tasting heaven, and you think, I, have I, am I already there? And you're worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. It's the full range of motion of Christian experience. But the goal of the Christian life is that every area of our life would be so invaded by the Father's truth, so invaded by the Father's spirit, bound to him in love and affection, loyalty and trust, that it ends up just every part of our week ends up being worship. So like when you're in the middle of the work week, you know, like right in the least religious part of your life, when the demands of your work week are just pressurizing you into either excellence or desperation, right? In that moment, invite Jesus Christ into that space. Invite his truth to speak into that place. Invite his spirit into that place so that even there you're tasting the intimacy with God as your father. And it'll transform the whole thing into a time of worship. Even if you're not doing it consciously, you know it's running in the background. And then take that same process and apply it to every other area of your life, particularly the ones where you feel least religious about. And then you'll find that all of who you are, the deepest identity that you have is worshiper of the Father in spirit and truth. And that's when you're transformed. 
And that's when you're most, uh, the sweetest gift in mission to the people around you. And we'll talk about that mission part next week. Amen.